What's next? This is a question we're all having to ask and answer more frequently. I'm Jenny Blake, your host of the Pivot Podcast and author of Pivot, The Only Move That Matters is Your Next One. For show notes from this episode, visit jennyblake.me slash podcast. If change is the only constant, then let's get better at it. Here we go. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Pivot Podcast. I am overjoyed and just about fell out of my chair when today's guest said yes to be on the show. I'm thrilled to have Kevin Kelly here, who is senior maverick at Wired Magazine and one of his co-founding editors in 1993. He served as executive editor for seven years and is also founding editor and co-publisher of the popular Cool Tools website, which has been reviewing tools daily since 2003. Among many other fascinating projects, Kevin's new book is called The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future, which launches this week. And that's the topic of today's show. Kevin, welcome to the Pivot Podcast. It's really my pleasure being here. Thanks for inviting me. Sure thing. I want to kick off with a quote from the introduction of your book. You say, technology is humanity's accelerant. Because of technology, everything we make is always in the process of becoming. Every kind of thing is becoming something else, while it turns from might to is. All is flux. Nothing is finished. Nothing is done. This never-ending change is the pivotal axis of the modern world. In our new era, processes trump products. And then you say at the end, it's as if we've been living in rigid ice, and now we're in liquid, a new phase state. I find that absolutely fascinating. And as I mentioned before we hit record, I study careers and how people can be agile in this economy. Can you talk a little bit about this phase state shift to a more liquid, flux, flowing technological landscape? Yeah, I think this is a... um something that maybe uh, a futurist from a previous generation uh, named Alvin Toffler, he called this future shock, which is basically um, the idea that um, we are still kind of reverberating from this um, speeding up this, this constant state of change, which was really not the norm for most of our human history before. I mean, most people growing up uh, a thousand years ago, 500 years ago, 200 years ago, um, kind of did what their parents did. And um, there wasn't much need to look ahead too far because um, you actually probably learn more by looking at the past and things were being repeated. But that really changed with the invention of science um, and the arrival of technology and even kind of self uh, creating technology where we use technology to make new technology. And now we have this sort of runaway state where um, things are kind of never finished. They're always in the process of becoming. And uh, we're still adjusting to that. That This this is, this is takes a lot of um, training. It, it takes education because I don't think it's that natural. And uh, to, to to be persistent at this level, to just be constant. And I think um, what I suggest is we kind of adopt a, a I don't know an attitude of techno literacy, where we where we become literate in um, in this sort of 
flux where um, you become a lifelong learner. You, you know, you you it's not you, you don't stop at high school or when you graduate from college. You basically are that's the point you begin really learning, and um, you learn all your life. You're you're always a newbie. You're an eternal newbie because technology is making new things which you have to learn anew and often have to unlearn which is sometimes even more difficult to do um and we are in the process of also redefining our, our very nature and and i'm mean, not just redefining but even bending changing the very nature of what it is to be humans and so this is this is a big big project both at the individual level your careers as well as you know societal level so it's so it's so the gears are moving in many many speeds and i think um we don't really give enough recognition to both the difficulty of this and the necessity of it and i think people who are going to prosper um in the future will Hopefully, more than intuitively understand this, but also, you know, explicitly be, be taught that that that's this meta skill that you need, which is um, how to learn new things, um, learning how the system of technology operates in general, like we learn how to read, and and, and I think we may not just be able to learn this by osmosis, by hanging around you can't learn reading just by sort of being near books you actually have to spend four or five years to learn how to read you can't really learn calculus just by being around math you have to actually study it and i think some of these uh processes of learning becoming technical literacy may may require us to actually give deliberate practice deliberate training deliberate education where we understand the best practice and are taught that right now we're kind of left it to ourselves to do. And so those who are able to do it themselves can prosper. But I think, I think this is important enough that we'll eventually have to teach it to each other. Mm -hmm. You give an interesting example in the book about the perpetual newbie state where even those of us who are techno literate, let's say, well, our app is getting a system upgrade every couple months, and the apps sometimes upgrade their entire interface. So even when you think you know how something works, get ready to relearn it again, that we're always yeah. going to be newbies and increasingly so. I, I mean, my own personal experience is, is because I'm a photographer and I do, I do things visually and design books, is that I will use the, uh, some of the Adobe Suite um, apps, which are really some of the most complicated uh, bits of software that we have at the consumer level and um i'll use it and then not use it for a year or something and then come back and things will be different the things will be gone Men menu items will have drifted moved somewhere else or um there'll be new ones and i i, I really have to go back to linda which is a site that i really recommend um that teaches technical skills online um, and I have to I have to take a refresher course um, because it's like I'm a newbie. I mean, it's like I'm brand new. I have to uh, take the the orientation classes to kind of both refresh myself, but also learn what the new things are. And um, that's sort of you know that's sort of what you have to kind of sign up for is that you're going to go back and have to learn these things again. And those are a great example of 
a little too complex to just plop yourself in front of it and learn yeah. it. At least that's been right, my right. experience with Illustrator. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can thrash around it <laughs> half a day just wasted in trying yeah. to remember, how do I link this One text? tiny thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. You mentioned that it's hard for us to adapt and adjust in a sense. And, and it seems like the technium, as you call it, and what technology wants is actually becoming more human-like in terms of this perpetual state of becoming. And yet, we're not used to it. We almost um, reject that in ourselves at times, I think, this, this perpetual learner, never done, never there. And now technology is mirroring that. I think, I, I wouldn't say that technology is becoming human-like. I would say it's becoming very lifelike and biological mm. life. It's lifelike in the sense that it it's more like an organism or a superorganism that has its own... Um, urges and tendencies and kind of um, uh, exerts its own agenda to some extent. Uh, but but um, so so often I think the, the best way to kind of visualize where, where we're headed in technology is to imagine it almost like a wilderness where you have this very complicated ecosystem of all these interdependent pieces of technology and to kind of intuitively grok the how it works is almost like you know like a, a, a scout or a naturalist being you know kind of to, to intuitively or even a doctor to understand how the body is sort of a very large complicated system where there are many inter- interdependent parts and um we might even need to, you know, to hire guides and scouts to to, to get us through um, this this new technium, um, in the sense that that you, it's really hard to kind of reduce it the way we often think science works to reduce to kind of just understanding one little part at a time. It really does require a more systems approach and a mindset. Where um, you understand that, um, in the words of the kind of science of chaos, is you know one small little change in one area can have a very large ramification, amplifying effect somewhere else, and um, uh, you know th- there are just a lot of counterintuitive ways in which the system of technology works as a system, and I, I think um, using a biological metaphor is actually helpful for people rather than the machine metaphor so if if you understand that the kind of that your you know your iphone is is really kind of an ecosystem it's it's probably much more related in terms to to a meadow than it is to a clock and uh, everybody understands if you upgrade this thing over here you may require upgrading all these other things. Um, you can't just sort of change one little gear. You have to change everything all at once. And and that's, I think, part of this techno-literacy that I was talking about. One aspect of that you mentioned is systems thinking. How can people improve their systems thinking skills? That's a really great question. And um, um, I, I, I don't think I have some practical advice other than I think be aware. I mean, I think the first step is, is really to just be aware that these are systems and the systems have their own logic. There's a great book that's an obscure book and I think still back in print. It was called System Antics 
system antics. I think that was one word. And um, I think it was John Gall, G-A-L-L, if I'm not mistaken. And he kind of did a little roundup of what he thought were system logic, how how systems kind of work in general. Um, you know, a, a very famous sort of um, quote or aphorism of system thinking was the people would rise to the level of their incompetence. They, they yes. would be promoted to the level of their incompetence. The which Peter makes, Principle. Basically, yeah. the Peter Principle, right. So that the, you know, as long as you were doing well, you would get promoted, and then you would get promoted and to the point that you weren't doing well. And so basically, you were being promoted to the level of your incompetence. Right. Or or that the, another idea is that, is that um, you know, the, the um, a systems generally would... Um, Work expands to fulfill the yes. amount of resources that are available to it, and so these are those are kind of little um, aphorisms and proverbs that that have a system thinking. But I, I think the the main thing is just to be aware that the systems have their own way of doing things that are not present in any of the parts of the system. Okay, so you know, the sum is greater than the parts, but that also means that the behavior of the system is not contained or not representative in any of the parts. And so the system will, will behave in a way that none, none of the parts, meaning that you could have a society that behaves very differently than any of the individual humans. So so while all the humans may be very nice and altruistic, the system itself could be very um, mercenary, say, because it, the system level can because it operates at a, at a different level and it can have different behaviors there. And so, just um, I think becoming aware of that, looking at other systems, look becoming a fan, a student of nature. That's a system. Um, your health, your body is a system. And so I, I think um, paying attention to these other systems that are around us would help us understand and become good at this other system of both the society and the technium, um, which we are operating in and trying to make careers out of. And I think um, if you understand, again, that the system as a whole has dynamics that are not present in any of the parts that will be a big step forward. One of the things I found quite hopeful in the book is you say 2016 now is the best time to start up that even though some people feel like they missed the boat because so many domains are already registered, you're saying we're going to look back on this time now and say, wow, that was prime time. Can you say a little yeah, more about that? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, um, I'm old enough to, I've been through a couple of tech cycles, and um, you know, hindsight's much clearer than foresight. And so, in retrospect, you know, when the web was, when the internet was first coming along, um, anybody could have uh, claimed a domain name um, for nothing almost really just you decided you wanted it and you get it because they were all available. It was, it was the very, very beginning. And, um, so you, and, and all the, uh, a lot of the easier, a lot of the, um, 
simple ideas of taking something that existed in the physical world and say, let's make an online version of it. And we'll take a store and we'll make an online store. Wow. Okay. So um, that was a very obvious thing to do. Many people did and some people got rich doing it. Others lost money, but there was a lot of opportunity to take those obvious things. And it seems now that, well, all the easy things were done and it's really you're fighting a billion startups and they're all competing for scarce um, attention and how much better would have been to have started 20 years ago. And um, the thing that people forget is um, that uh, what is coming, where we're going to, the things that are going to be invented in the next 10 or 20 years will be so significant that they will dwarf what we've already had. And while we think we're kind of, you know, we've been living in the internet age, we actually haven't even, I mean, the internet's still in its infancy. It's only, you know, 8,000 days old or something. It's very, very, very young. And in the next 30 years, it will develop into this much more amazing and deep thing that when we look back at this time right now we'll say well you guys didn't really even have an internet then um which also means that the most important inventions and innovations in 30 years from now haven't been invented yet i mean not just like haven't been marketed yet i mean they haven't even been invented yet we don't even don't have names we haven't seen them and i'm not talking about the things i talk about in my book like AI and virtual reality, because we do have those now. And I do believe that they will become really, really important, but they won't be the most important thing, the most important thing we have not yet invented. And that means that one of you people out there right now listening could be the person to, or the team, to invent that, wherever you live, no matter where where in the world it is. You have as much of a chance and maybe a better chance than someone working at Google or Facebook does to actually invent this, these things that were going to become the central engines of in 30 years from now. So that means that you're not late. That means that um, this really is the best time in the world so far ever, because um, we now have more, tools, lower barriers, and um, all the low-hanging fruits are still there. All the low-hanging fruits for the next 30 years are, are, are right here. And um, AI, I mentioned AI, and that's one of them, is, which is like, um, or VR. There are no VR experts. There are a lot of people working on VR right now, but in terms of what actually works in 30 years, there are no experts right now. There are actually very few AI experts. So um, you have as much, you out there, the listeners, have as much chance of anybody as becoming the VR expert or the AI expert. I love how you say in the book that the business plans for the next 10,000 startups could be take AI and combine it with something else. Right. It's, it's the analogy that I'm using is um, 150 years ago, the, the industrial revolution, which, you know, is our prosperity is, was based on, it brought in all the good stuff, the leisure, the, the increased health 
and longevity that we all enjoy right now, the industrial revolution was really powered by this synthetic power, by, by the fact that we figured out how to make artificial power instead of relying on human muscle or animal power. Um, so we harness first steam, coal and steam, and then oil, and, and, and generating electricity to to um, do all this work. And so when you have a car today that has 250 horses in it, basically 250 horsepower, you have you you are you are harnessing the power of 250 horses. Just at the you know at the, 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 the flick of your key, and so um, that was the industrial revolution, and we took um, things that were manual, like a hand pump to a water pump, and we electrified them. And the thing was, and the the beauty of it was that um, you were just buying. You had, we made electrical grids so anybody could purchase electricity. They didn't have to generate it. They could just purchase this commodity called electricity and, and electrify their, their factory or, or take something like a, a pump and electric, make an electric pump out of it. And so that's where a lot of the wealth came from, both in making these new kinds of, of devices and then also using them to do all kinds of things that we couldn't do before. And now we're going to kind of do this second industrial revolution this um, new information-based thing where we're going to take AI, we're going to take artificial smartness, artificial intelligence, we're going to cognify things that we had formerly electrified, where we're going to add a little, we're going to add 250 minds, 250 brains to do something. And um, that we're going to have the same kind of an effect on our, our society in every respect in the same way that industrial revolution affected everything we, we had done before from education to entertainment, to sports, food, whatever, the, the same kind of effect is going to be coming soon when we have this AI as a commodity and you won't generate the AI. You'll just purchase it on a grid as much AI or IQ as you want or can afford or need, and you'll use it to make smart the pump. The pump will now be a smart pump, and or the um, uh, again, the most the more obscure the idea, the more powerful it will be when we add this 24 hours, seven day a week, 365 days a year mind uh, thinking synthetic learning to these things and uh, uh, that's that's the new frontier and, and and again it's going to be available to anybody in the world right now today right as we are speaking you can buy ai from google google is now and and so is microsoft but google has a has a commercial product where you can go to their their site and purchase ai mostly right now in perception and it's 60 cents for a thousand instances. Um, what could you do with that? Well, that's a great question. And, and some people will be start to, to fool around and, and think about um, what they could do with this cheap AI. So fascinating. You mentioned also virtual reality and augmented reality. And now there's a term mixed reality. I just finished reading your magic leap 
write-up for Wired. It was so, so good. And then Wired also recently released a video, which I'll link in the show notes. Everybody must watch this. This technology is truly mind-blowing. And I would love to hear a little more about your experience with it. And for someone like me, I can see virtual reality or augment AR or MR coming down the pike, but it's hard for me to see how it will relate to career and business. Right now, it seems a lot of fun imagination and video mm-hmm. games and even health. So I'm wondering if you can speak to that second part as well. Yeah. So, um, you know, virtual reality is the thing that we have the most preconceptions about is you, you, you have a goggle that you put on, like a swim goggles, and you... Uh, it kind of replaces everything you see with this synthetic artificial world. And the thing about it is the, the um, crucial innovation is, is that you a hundred percent feel in your body, not just your mind, but you feel like you're somewhere else. And um, the MR, the AR, the mixed reality is where you take something that's like a clear pair of glasses kind of like Google Glass, but you take clear glasses and the um, something artificial, like an artificial object, will appear in the kind of the normal vision of the room that you're in or even outside. Um, and so you'll, you can see something synthetic, maybe even a synthetic screens, artificial screens that will be hovering wherever you want to put them. And you can manipulate these artificial things with your hands. And so, um, I mean, you can move them around. So the, um, this, of the of those two, the second one making the mixed reality where you take ordinary reality and you add this virtual stuff layered into it is that's technically more difficult to do. And if you can do that, then you can actually do VR by just kind of making everything black and then you, I mean, making the room, you turn down the room in the background and then you have a completely artificial world. So the, the VR is a subset of the bigger mixed reality. So if you can do mixed reality, you can do both. And Magic Leap is this secretive company in, in Florida that got uh, several billion dollars in financing and they haven't yet released even um, demos of the or developer kits or anything. So... Um, but but they but their technology is um, does work, and um, my experience in trying it out is is that uh, the synthetic things that you see in your glasses um, don't look exactly real, but they look really present. So they're it's like it's like maybe if you had a cartoon version of Mickey Mouse, and it was really present. You really felt it was there. It was that cartoon was really there, and I think um, so, so. So that's sort of the state of the art and the VR worlds from the Oculus and others that Facebook have been financing um, do really work. You you there's enough resolution and um, other things, uh, other technical aspects of it that that you really do feel that you're somewhere else. And so the your question is well. Okay, we can see, you can kind of see how a game would really kind of be cool. The Ready Player One Oasis game where you are in these other worlds. But how would that be uh, applied to a career? And I think the, um, the mixed reality is actually one place where we're going to see it first come, actually arrive in, the, uh, in, work, in workplaces. And that is, is that um, 
if you can wear a pair of, of spectacles and have um, artificial screens and an artificial person, uh, a teleconference, like a you know, like a holodeck kind of version of a holographic version of a person, a colleague, a coworker from a distant place sitting next to you. Um, that really does change um, uh, how we work. And um, I would say a couple of things about that telepresence. One is um, uh, there's lots of approaches right now to try and ramp up the you know the, the the resolution so it really looks like it's a real person and it is amazing i mean the, some of the demos i saw you could see every hair of the person moving and you could see the fabric the weave of the fabric in their clothes and it was actually so um so real looking that I felt uncomfortable getting too close because I mean you could actually walk through them because they're just a visual they're just a ghost, but it, it just felt like you're invading their space, and so so that 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 works. But it turns out in fact that you don't even need that kind of um, of realism, which is very uh, bandwidth intensive. So there, there, that's going to be a long time before most people have that kind of bandwidth. And we're talking like gigabytes, you know, gigabytes per second. Um, I mean, it's like, or you know, it's it's way beyond what we have right now um, to be able to to transmit that kind of stuff in live real time. And it also requires a lot of uh, camera stuff set up in both both rooms. And so, I mean, both sides of the of the of the link. And so, it turns out that you don't need that high of a resolution if you have a couple other things you can kind of do something with um a little bit more cartoony um kind of like what second life was was originally trying to do they're now doing it in three dimensions in in a virtual reality presence if you have if if the other person is looking is giving you eye contact that you can follow that has their voice and if all their their micro, all the facial micro movements are are communicated from their own face onto this avatar. That you have enough of a sense of presence of them being there that it works, and so that 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 does exist now. And what where this where I'm going with this is that um, is it, the the office of the future would be putting on one of these things wherever you are and then you can have your entire future as many screens as you wanted to you have your other colleagues working not just one but you can have many of them sitting around in the kinds of um you know hollywood versions of this um and that ability to have other people really present and collaborate with them in that way i think is huge for um the future of work and and how we work together, and I and I I really believe that the most social of all the social media that we have invented is going to be VR. It's having other people there, either sharing experiences or sharing work, collaborating. That's the real power. It's not kind of on your own exploring a world. It's actually having other people and doing things together. That is the real real power there, and I think that will change how we how we work together. 
Yeah, those were two themes that came up strongly in the book that it's not so much the technology itself, it's the people and the experiences. And that's what's going to continue to engage us and connect us and differentiate us. And VR, um, I think what VR generates for us or gives us is um, right now we have an internet of information from Wikipedia to you know PDFs to news sites to you know, our little tweets to sharing uh, photographs these are all these are all documents and information and I think what you get with VR is the currency of VR is experiences you you, you actually ex- you actually are there somewhere else when when, when you are um, if, if you can do a kind of a virtual relocation to say a scene in Iran where they're having a demonstration you're no longer coming observing it. You actually are experiencing it. When when you actually exit, you recall it not as having something you have seen, but you recall it as something that you experienced. And so this currency of experience, I think, is the other shift that we're going to from Internet of Information to Internet of Experiences. And that that is um, th- th- that's much more human in in many ways. That's what we're built for is to share experiences and the information stuff is sort of what the ais and the the bots and the robots are doing they're they're, they're going to process the information they're going to give us the answers you know and um what we're concerned about as humans are this other stuff of experiences of um questions of uncertainties of uh, of inefficiencies, of trial of failures, because science and innovation mostly com- is composed of things that don't work. And these are uh, th- those are the kinds of things I think we're going to um, really, as humans, um, th- that's what our job is going to be. So anything that is sort of information-based, anything that's related to productivity, anything that's about efficiency goes to the bots, goes to the AIs, goes to the machines. Um, getting an answer, that's, getting the right answer is a thing, is a job for machines. That's what machines are good at. And if you want an answer, don't ask a human, ask a machine. <laughs> and, but what humans are good for are Asking questions, and I think in the future um, you'll be paid by how good your questions are. You'll be paid by how what kind of questions you ask. You'll be paid by how well you question the assumptions. You'll be paid by um, you know how 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 well you um, ask uh, and discover something, explore. Um, that seems very aspirational right now. People would say, "Well, you know, that's for the elites. That's for the the privileged." And 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 that is true right now. But that's actually where we're headed to. That's actually what we're trying to do. That's actually what we want. We actually want to do that in the same way that education was just something that the elite had uh, three hundred years ago. The being literate was was something for the elites, but now we understand that, and we are able to actually have met, you know education for everybody. So that's it's something that we are committed in our best moments to have available to everybody, and everybody can be. We we realize everybody can be educated, and I think it's the same thing about having jobs 
that are based around what humans are good at and not having uh, jobs that, that humans are, or, or don't really want to do and aren't really good at. So a lot of the jobs that the politicians are fighting over are really, I believe, jobs that we're going to be embarrassed that humans ever did. Working in a factory is, is, is a job for robots. Being a cashier, a truck driver, these are, these, are, these are things that while people can get some enjoyment and can do a good job, they, they really should go to the AIs and robots. And, uh, you know, becoming a personal coach, a yoga teacher, a nurse, uh, a mathematician, a ballerina, these are things that... that these are these are the kinds of jobs that we should be aiming for. And a lot of those jobs are interpersonal and more creative. Like the example of the ballerina. She's not a widget in a factory, you know. She's expressing art essentially. And I yeah. I think it's it's the hope that more people can find a sustainable way to live by doing their art, whatever that means to them. Right, but you use the keyword interpersonal because one of the things I want to emphasize is that um these kind of jobs that are liber- that that are actually going to be made by technology and and, and allowed us uh, because the robots will do other things. It's not people say, well, you know, not everybody's cut out to do this intellectual, you know, cognitive, uh, load bearing jobs, and that's true. Not everybody is going to be happy doing that. But a lot of these things are are very interpersonal. It's like, um, you know, uh, uh, a, a nursing a bedside. Uh, Someone to 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 sit with you while you're sick. That's where we want the human touch. That's the very interpersonal. That's a very social thing. That's that's not something that that's something that um, doesn't require a lot of uh, you know a lot of cerebral training to do. It requires someone with with great interpersonal skills. And so there and, and I think those are actually become some of the most expensive. That's that's where we're going to spend our money. Right, I mean the commodities and the food and all these um, things will be uh, at the commodity level will become cheaper. But like a chef, okay, cooking really good food—not just kind of your your basic staples, which the robots will do—but doing something that uh, that touches people—that's that's where our money is going to go to, and and that's one of the few places right now where the prices are rising. Concert tickets. You know, experiences, a tour for this or that, um, you know, even babysitting, all these kinds of things are uh, are things where the, where the prices are going up. And I think um, uh, so, so interpersonal is, is actually a, a great term for um, a lot of the, the kind of jobs that, that humans will be doing and that are that will feel rewarding to people. Yeah, it seems interpersonal and almost inter-robot. I know you're going to speak with Tom Guariello, who does RoboPsych, uh, the psychology of human-robot interaction. We're friends here in New York. And it seems like also interfacing with the robots and partnering with robots will be helpful to some extent. Yes, I think you'll be paid by how well you actually you know, whisper to AI, how well you understand AI. It's just like... Um, um, you know, it's, it's sort of how well you work with with robots. That will be another aspect of the techno literacy skill is is understanding how they work because they will think differently than humans. And just like some people are really good with machines, understanding the machines, 
uh, you know, how, how like a you know, lawnmower car runs. There, there'll be people who um, will have, you know, a better skill at understanding of talking to or cooperating or, or, or working with AIs. And this, and the way that some people are kind of um, power users for Google, right? I mean, Google is a kind of AI already. So they, they just kind of, um, you know, they might be able to command um, a better position because they can actually talk to the AIs. And, 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 and I think I will stress that the AIs are going to eliminate certain tasks. I think they may not eliminate jobs. I think they may transform jobs, but they're going to eliminate a lot of tasks. And so a lot of the jobs, jobs is composed of many tasks. And some of those tasks will just be done by AIs. But that means that we're kind of wind up working with the AIs. And um, the great example to me was um, the loss of the uh, human chess champion, Gary Kasparov, to Deep Blue almost a decade ago. he realized, Kasparov, the chess champ, realized that he could have won if he had had access to the same database of all the moves in history that Deep Blue had, the AI had. Um, and so he made up a new ch- chess league that was kind of like a free martial arts version where you could play with um, the AI. AI. You, could, you, you could either be an AI playing, or you could be a human chess master playing, or you could be the, what they call centaurs a AI plus a human. And right now, in the last couple of years, the world's best chess player is not an AI and it's not a human, but it is a centaur. It is a human plus AI. And Deep Blue was basically retrained as Watson and is now being trained as a doctor to do diagnosis. But the best diagnoses are not a human and are not uh, Watson itself, but a human plus Watson. And that suggests to us that um, you know the best, smartest, you know best kind of team for doing something will be not just AIs and robots and not just humans, but AIs plus robots. And so I think learning how to work with these things because they are going to be systems. It's like having interpersonal skills, and as you say, you're kind of inner robotic skills, but they'll be inner artificial person skills will be um, really crucial. And um, uh, I I think um, if I was giving career advice, I would say, um, yeah, learn how to work with these things as part of your technical literacy, because that will become a really very, very valuable skill. One of the things I find fascinating and inspiring about you is how early you try new technologies and not just that, but how you sort of parse which ones have a future and might catch on. And of course, I'm sure that involves some intuition and maybe a lot of mistakes too, but you even share how you consulted for the movie Minority Report that was set for 2050. And many of those things are becoming reality, like Magic Leap. So I'm just curious, how do you get your finger on the pulse so early with technology? What are your secrets? And how do you, if at all, sort out what might really catch on and filter out the noise? Yeah, that's a good question. So so one thing that, that you know, we have a limited amount of time. So, so 
uh, one thing I would say is, in, in a certain sense, I am privileged because this is sort of my job. Okay, so so in some senses, it is my my work to try these things. And the the the, the key word there is try. So I I will try things pretty early, but I'm very um, happy to let things go and not to feel obligated to to you know use Twitter or Facebook or you know whatever it is if if you know, if it's not working for me and I have certain things that I'm trying to optimize in my life. And so, um, I think there's too many choices that we have, um, to be, you know, kind of constrained to any particular ones. And so we should be very, very, uh, free to, to, um, abandon things. But I really think that the way we can steer and manage technology is through engagement. And so, um, I'm a big advocate of trying things, and particularly try them before you dismiss them. You know, I mean, it's okay to dismiss them after you've tried them, but you really have to try things. And um, so, so trying as many things is one one of the jobs, and it is sometimes a job. And then, secondly, um, I pay a lot of attention to how things are actually used versus how the inventors think they were going to use versus how they're supposed to be used. William Gibson, a science fiction writer, had a great line, which is the street has its own use for things. And so I really try to look at the street use of how people are really using them. And I really pay a lot of attention to these kind of sometimes small little notices about um, people using something that was not designed to be used that way. And that's my idea, kind of the talk, the technology, listening to the technology. It's kind of like the technology has a certain bias that it's easier to use in certain directions. It's kind of like a grain in, in wood. It can go in a certain direction. So I'm looking to see where technology is biased and how it kind of wants to be used. And so oftentimes, um, where laws are occurring, laws often are written to try and prevent the technology from doing what it wants to do. You know, trying to run in one way, for instance, like copying. So, so I like to say that right. you know, the internet's the world's largest copy machine. If it can be copied and it touches the internet, it will be copied. And so there was this that was very obvious to me that. This is this new era that that you know we we kind of encountered in the late '80s. Nobody was had ever thought about it before very much. I was you know bought into the kind of copyright idea of everybody else, but it was obvious from the very beginning that it wanted to copy stuff, and um, and so there was this kind of um, effort, a, a response to limit the copy, copy protection, all kinds of laws to prevent the copying. But it was like, no, the technology says that it wants to, it wants to copy. And so what would, if it, you know, if, if, if you allowed that, if you let it go in that direction, because it's going to eventually anyway, then what does that look like? And, and so you begin to rehearse like, well, if everything's being copied, then, then what happens? So, so that's what I would do is I would look at it and say, what does it want? What does it, how is the technology biased in a certain direction? And cause, cause eventually it's going to trump our other attempts and the law, it will eventually catch up. 
to just sort of acknowledge the fact that that's how things are being done. So that's a long-winded way of saying that I, I try to look, listen to the technology and look at how um, it encourages people to u- really use it, not necessarily how it was designed to be used. Mm, I love that. And it's, as you say, it's also about leaning into the uncertainty, chaos, and fluidity of technology. And I love that, listening to what technology wants, which was also an amazing book that you wrote. I want to end with a, a note from my dad. He read What Technology Wants, and he says, some books are food for thought. This one is a 12-course meal. And it's exactly how I feel about the inevitable as well. Kevin Kelly, thank you so much. This has been beyond fascinating. I'm a huge fan of you and your work. And Really just want to say thank you for your contributions to this space. It's incredibly enlightening and thought-provoking. Thank you. Well, it's a real pleasure being here. Um, uh, Thank you for my interest in the inevitable and these sort of long-term trends, which I think are going to play out. And I hope that we can engage them and embrace them. That's the best way to steer stuff is through engagement. Um, I think this is a really exciting time there's a, this is a moment when um, the power to make something happen has never been easier. I hope that all your listeners try to make something happen. Um, and uh, I, you know, I'm really excited by where we're going. I'm a total optimist. I think this is going to be amazing 20 to 30 years ahead. So um, I appreciate your inviting me and having a chance to share. The pleasure is all mine and ours. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Kevin, thanks again for being here. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Pivot Podcast. To learn more and get in touch, visit JennyBlake.me, where I blog about systems at the intersection of mind, body, and business, or find me on Twitter at Jenny underscore Blake. And remember, build first, then your courage will follow. Hasn't it always?